Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes John Robinson. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. Over the years, there have been a handful of drummers that have reached the ultimate plateau of first-call rhythm makers who are called on to deliver the best grooves for the greatest producers and artists. If you're thinking of a few, most likely John Robinson is on the list. From Michael Jackson's Off the Wall to Quincy Jones' The Dude, from Smokey Robinson's One Heartbeat to Anita Baker's Rapture, from Joe Sample's Spellbound to Ricky Lee Jones' Flying Cowboys, you'll find his uniquely experienced groove added to each hit. Because of his ability to deliver the right feel for the right project, he has been one of Quincy Jones' drummers since 1979, and Barbara Streisand since 1993. He's been pegged as one of the most recorded drummers in history, and a look at his discography will leave you convinced. As a global drummer, J.R. Robinson is leaving his mark not only in the U.S., but also internationally. Inside MusicCast is pleased to welcome John J.R. Robinson. Hey, John, thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's my honor. It's great to be here, guys. Welcome, Thank J.R. You. Hey, I've got a quick question. I want to start off. Uh, football season's over, and I noticed on your website that there's sort of a modified Kansas City Chiefs logo, except there's no KC. It says J.R. on it. Uh, I take it you're a big Lenny Dawson fan, right? Um, well, I'm a great uh, Kansas City Chiefs fan. <laughs> uh, I'm a... Uh, I'm, you know, Lenny Dawson was the only quarterback that won for us. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you were sort of raised uh, right next door in Iowa. I was right, ra- yeah, right north uh, there in southwest Iowa. Yeah. So you was, do you remember uh, going to any games there or not really? You know, I was too young to actually go. Really? And um, by the time, um, you know, I... I you know, started getting into junior high and high school and stuff. It you know, you become a professional student. And then I uh, moved to Boston. Really? She was. How old were you when you moved to Boston? I was eighteen. Really? Okay. So you had plenty of in your growing up years, your early years. That that was pretty much in Iowa. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just did all the schooling and stuff in Iowa, and then I went ended up going to a Berkeley College of Music. And exactly. Well, you know, at an early age, you really started playing music, and your parents were, I guess, pretty instrumental in, in getting you involved into the and passionate about music, right? You know what? And and, and uh, I don't know if all parents in these days do. You know, are, yeah. I, you know, with all the activities with kids and uh, the, the you know more homework, I think sometimes kids uh, don't. Um, you know, turn certain directions maybe that they should. But yeah, yeah my parents were extremely, um, you know, in- influential in getting me into the direction. When my dad was a, he was an optometrist, and, mm-hmm. and he used to uh, be a, an arranger in the chorus and uh, and played violin. And then my mother always was a frustrated drummer. So your mom, huh? Yeah. So they, <laughs> she, she was the one that kind of introduced me to the word swing. Interesting. So you studied music at Berkeley, and I'm just curious. You know, how often do you Go back. Are you still involved with with Berkeley at all, or do you do go back and teach seminars or, or anything like that? Actually, I have not been back in several years, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm extremely involved with the university or the, you know the college and uh-huh. uh, not quite a university yet. But um, um, I still uh, you know donate and um, yeah, I'm in touch with certain individuals, and including Roger Brown, the president, mm-hmm. and uh, you know like you know sometimes uh, you know they've. It's a good uh, camaraderie, I think, to always keep in touch with your alma mater. Yeah, I'm sure. A lot of the music schools have that, uh, you know, when people excel and they've made their their niche in the professional music scene, going back. And, I mean, it's really interesting to to have a a teaching spirit to go back and see the young kids that are sort of, you know, they're hungry. How do you make it in this business, you know? So, so let me. They've multiplied. Right. Oh, yeah. It's becoming very, very crowded. So, what would you do if you go to Berkeley, uh, you know, in the past few years, as opposed to when you were getting into music back in Berkeley? What's changed and what kind of challenges, I mean, is a a kid that's going to be, I mean, maybe there's somebody in our audience that's listening that's young and and they're uh, they're a music student. And, uh, I mean, what kind of challenges are are they going to face now that that you may have not faced? Well, man, that's a great question. There's uh, there's tons of new challenges uh, with. Just the way and the impact of, of the way the music business is, mm-hmm. uh, not even getting into the fact of what's going on with the record labels. 
But, you know, when we start to watch the Grammys, you're, you're going to see all this pressure that's, you know, coming from these, you know, the young artists, and yeah. everybody's already achieved this huge, uh, you know, the bar so high. Right. Um, you know, as a young kid, you know, coming out of high school, going and determining what music college you want to go to, if indeed you are going to go, which is probably the biggest obstacle I see with these young kids, was they don't want to make the commitment mm -hmm. to go actually to at least two years of music school to realize that they really, really don't know anything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everybody out of high school thinks, oh, man, I'm just the baddest cat. I'm the baddest sure, cat. Right. I'm going to yeah. join this band, and I'm right. going to make millions of dollars, and I'm going to be set. But what I you know, insist with, one of the challenges is make the decision, go to school. Yeah. Go to school yeah. at least for a, a couple of years. You know, do it and learn, learn things that you don't know. The thing about going to a school like Berkeley is that all of a sudden you're, you're thrust in with these people from China and Japan and oh, yeah. the Middle East mm -hmm. and Africa, right. and, and all of a sudden you're playing with cats that you've never played with in high school. Yeah, right. And, uh, and, all, and then you, you have this whole change. I mean, what happened to me was, you know, I came from Southwest Iowa where it's, you know, it's rock and roll and big bands. Yeah, right. And so then I got there and I, I met this guy named Toro Okoshi, who's a kind of famous Japanese trumpet player. He's kind mm -hmm. of like a Miles Davis of Japan. Yeah. And, but he lives in Boston still. But I ended up joining his seven-piece Miles band, and it got me really into Miles Davis. And it just it totally changed my life. Right. You know, so that's one obstacle. Other, I mean, we could go on forever on this. So yeah, know, obstacles really. are obviously technology, right, right. You know, knowing, you know, we didn't have computers when I went there. Yeah. At Fender Rhodes Pianos, and, and uh, we did everything analog, and now everything is, you have to actually be a master of your own domain. You have yeah. to be able to be an engineer, a rough engineer. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to get the, uh, you know, your, your web scene going on your right. own. You have to have a package that way, and... And I think most kids pick up on this quite easily, though. Well, you know, music, that's, I wanted to ask, you dive into that just for a second when you mentioned technology. And with the advent of technology, you know, true, it's, they're wonderful tools, you know, from Pro Tools to MIDI to sequencing and, and everything you have in between. But there's a part of me that feels like, you know, what you were talking about a, a moment ago, maybe going back to work ethic, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of that, in a sense, makes creating music uh, a little simpler. And I, I wonder if kids... You know, today going to school, you know, their parents have supported them in music and they've bought them a sampler and bought them sequencers and, you know, they've got ways to record with cheap, you know, home recording setups. If, if they think that, you know, I don't need theory, I can just hammer away <laughs> and, and create this music and, you know, and, 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 hit and the nail right in the head. I, sample think, I, think, I think you'd be surprised what that statistic is. You know, I think that I bet you close to 75% of players think that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah today, which is really sad. It's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I mean, finish up on what you were saying. No, no, I was actually there, I, you know, because that was my point. I, I think with the advent of technology, I just wonder if kids think that this is the way it is, and if they haven't been taught properly in their school system, when their music program or private lessons or whatever they've done, it, you know, it, to read, to study music theory, um, et cetera, I just wonder if they think that this is the music business. It's just, it's a bunch of samples. Well, you know, unfortunately, I, I, uh, California is such a great state, but in reality, they teach terrible music programs here. Mm -hmm. I do not like the educational uh, music a aspect in this uh, state. Wow. Really? Where I came from in Iowa, it's, and it still <laughs> is, it's still doing great. And I don't know what it's like where you guys are, but um, my point being is that I think their music, you know, I was, uh, I was an athlete also. Mm -hmm. you know, I was a starter basketball player all my whole career. And right. I also started mm -hmm. on the track team. And, uh, you know, there were, there were times when I was juggling, uh, starting on the basketball team, playing mm -hmm. halftime show at the band, mm -hmm. and then doing a <laughs> gig with the band directors after the game. Yeah. You know, so, like, I'm, I'm like, basically, you know, rung out after the, the right. day, but... I, you know, the music programs where we are, we're in Indiana, we're in Indianapolis, right. and I will say that the music programs here are... Are pretty good, yeah. uh, you know, and really, marching band is king here. Right, and it's right. this is this is marching band country here and in Texas. I think are the two big marching right. band states. And, right, and I tell you, it's very competitive. And some of the musicians that come out of these these programs are just amazing. I mean, they're really good for <laughs> you. Just can't believe what they're doing in high school. I mean, oh, you, well, that's the, see, that's great. And you know, again, Midwest baby. Yeah, it is, and even Chris Bodie. I mean, he's a product of. I mean, if I'm correct, Rick, isn't he out of Indiana? Well, Indiana University, he's you know? from the West Coast, but he studied at Indiana University. A very good friend of mine. 
Yeah. I've played with him many times. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, you develop your craft and, and, and you get good. I, um, but, uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's different times. Um, I'd, I'd like to touch a little bit, uh, moving on a little bit, because, like you said, we could hang on that for, for a long, long time. <laughs> well, we could always a, do part three to nine. Yeah, <laughs> we, might ha- we might have to do that, because uh, I have a feeling that there's so much that we can glean from you, and, and uh, you might have to say to our audience. But uh, I want to I wanna get to, to the next question, and, and it sort of directs me to the point where when you first crossed paths, uh, with the band uh, Rufus. Yes. Um, you were playing uh, in a band in 1978, but uh, tell us, when you guys crossed paths, you know, your, your band, what kind of music were you playing with your band? Uh, Great question. That caught the attention of, of a funk and soul band. That- we, we were playing, uh, we were in an R&B soul band. Really? <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was a, b- a bunch of white guys, uh, <laughs> except for I, I had brought my friend uh, Janet Tyler, this black singer, um, who was originally from North Carolina, but uh, I met her in Boston uh, as the lead singer, or one of the singers in this band. It was like an eight-piece band. It was a really good band, too. And uh, we were on on the road probably for almost a year, Mm -hmm. from 77 through 78, through first part of 78, and when I left. So, um, you know, we were doing all sorts of medleys. There was Earth, Wind, and Fire set. There was probably a Rufus tune in there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, there was probably Bee Gees stuff. So we were, you know, playing all sorts of uh, different stuff and, you know, big show gigs and dance gigs. And so the band just happened to, you're right, they just crossed paths with us. <laughs> and it was, it was, you know, it was something that you never see happen and it happened. So yeah. it was kind of amazing. So they were all like amazed about how funky the band was, but they all kind of said, do you mind if we sit in with me? Right. You know, to the leader, and uh, of course, I'm shaking my head as quickly as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Were you the leader of the band? No, I no. was not the leader of the band. You weren't. It was this uh, guy named Jimmy, and, and uh, I could see the other band members shaking their head yes too. And Jimmy was kind of <laughs> like this alto player dude, uh, kind of like going, um, oh, "I don't know, you know, it's our gig." And I go, "God, let these guys sit in." And sure enough, we played the next three sets right. <laughs> without them. So it was, it was just burning and then Shaka drifted up and and the rest was history. You know, well, at, at that time, I was in the music scene, Rufus has, has, was already a landmark group. They had, I mean, they, the phenomenal Tell Me Something Good, You've Got Love. And technically, I think it was, if you look back, it's, Rufus was a, a pretty much a landmark band because it was one of the very few multiracial bands that, that actually got together, you know? That's correct. And, and on the road back then, and I mean, you know, let me think of this as a, pretty much a diversity type of question, but were, were there any obstacles for, for you uh, you know and, and the band when you hopped on with Rufus uh, yeah, yeah you, know, you mean like even racially yeah I mean what, what kind of obstacles did you guys uh, I mean today it's like a different world but back then what, what was different I mean it, it was and you know when I got into you know I never ever saw color either it, yeah. it, and even being from Iowa yeah I mean even southwest Iowa I, I should stress because we, we didn't have a lot of uh, other ethnicities outside absolutely of, right but um, you know I joined the band and I I've always been just who I am, you know, yeah. it's not a big deal. And um, I remember some, you know, Bobby telling stories about when he got in the band, because he wasn't the original bass player, okay. uh, you know, about how they'd have to hide down at the bottom of the bus when they were going to the South. And, Jeez. you know, when the band started, when they joined the band after uh, 74 or 75, mm-hmm. they joined. And um, and then when I got in the band, there were times, uh, there, was a, <clears throat> there was a gig in Itabita, Mississippi, which is Mississippi Valley State College, okay. all black male school. Really, and we bus up to the gig, and and you know we're on some we're on a nine month tour in 1980, and and uh, I had really long blonde hair, and I was a really <laughs> good basketball player. Yeah, but we're uh, you know we're coming up and you know killing time while the roadies uh, set up, and I see there's the gymnasium in there, and so I sneak my head in, and and there's a uh, you know <laughs> ten brothers playing five on five. Yeah. And they stop and look at me and they go, what are you doing in here? <laughs> I go, well, I just got up. They go, what are you doing in here? I go, well, give me the ball. <laughs> and so I took the ball and I dribbled around them and slammed the ball. And they looked at me and they go, man, you're, you're great, man. You want, you want to hang out? And they go, who are you? I go, well, I'm the drummer with Rufus. And they go, you're the drummer with Rufus? What's your name? John Robinson. 
Well, you're our best friend, and so from then on, it was a, uh, I was uh, it was like I, I had moved into their dorm room. Yeah, so it was An honorary brother, honorary brother. So it was that was sometimes like that. Um, yeah, you know, there's there were other issues uh, that happened to other members of the band, but yeah. uh, you know, we never really looked at it like that. Yeah, right. You know, I think that was the beauty of the of the Rufus, the whole thing about Rufus, right. right. By the way, is uh, Bobby and I have put the band back together again. No way. Really? Way, way. <laughs> oh, no. Really? That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, we can get to that later. I'm sure you Oh, I'd that. love to dig into that just a little bit. You can dig in for a sec, sure. Cool. <laughs> well, speaking of, staying on the topic of, of Rufus, I think it was in 1978 is when you guys uh, won your first Grammy. Uh, 1983. 83. Really? Actually, okay. they won a Grammy before me. I think in 77. Okay. And then I won in 1983 okay. for uh, Ain't Nobody for Stomping at the Savoy. Oh, okay, okay. Uh-huh. Tell me, what was, the, was that your first Grammy? What was that the, was my first uh, one uh, by myself, yes. Yeah. Uh, one I can actually look at, which I can, I'm looking at right now, actually. Really? That's cool. <laughs> Tell us about uh, that. But I've you know, played on probably between 40 and 50 Holy cow. Grammy songs, you uh-huh. know, and, and depending on you know what classification or whatever. Uh-huh. No, but they don't give those to you. No, <laughs> no. You know, it appears that you know shortly after you joined Rufus, you were introduced, uh, I think, then to Quincy Jones. And tell us how you two hooked up for session work on, on a small project called Off the Wall. <laughs> yes, it was a, a new and upcoming artist that probably hasn't hit yet. Uh, his name's uh, Mick Mike Michael somebody Johnson. Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson. He's a sprinter. <laughs> <laughs> He, spr- he sprinted too fast. Michael uh, Jackson. <laughs> well, I met Quincy. F- Actually, when I was a kid, I used to apply to these national stage band camps. Okay. And uh, he was, uh, I remember, one of the guest arrangers at one. I could not go to that, but I'd say I, I was always just fond of this cat. Then I, I knew he had gone to Berkeley College of Music. Yeah. And then when I moved to Los Angeles, I was introduced to him by my manager, Mark Hartley. Oh, okay. At a uh, function in 1978. Uh, called the orchestra, mm-hmm. which was mm. uh, just kind of a it was a musical event of all this weird, wild music, and Quincy would come and mm-hmm. just be a guest or go on stage or something. Right, yeah. So I was introduced to him, and he goes, and you know, as the German Rufus and blah blah. So there was obviously talk about Rufus and Shaka getting together again and doing another record. Then the management put him together with us as our producer, and. Um, he could have made me and gone with Harvey Mason, but right. he said he, he dug the way I played, so that was it. And then at that same time, uh, after we were doing um, Master Jam, he asked me if I had done sessions outside the group. Right. Sometimes band guys don't like to do sessions. Sometimes they can't do sessions. I right. think that was maybe his uh, way of saying, do you do sessions? I go, well, sure, that's all I did at Berkeley was, uh, you know, I was a studio drummer right. doing everybody's stuff, so... Uh, he asked me to come in, and I came in on a Thursday by myself. I had uh, my roadie bear, uh, famous bear from the old days, uh, <laughs> dragged this old Gretsch set in and set it up. And um, I recorded a Paul McCartney tune called uh, Girlfriends and a Carol Bear Seger tune called It's the Falling in Love, both B-sides. Really? And uh, I overdubbed over another cat's drums, which will be nameless. <laughs> I nailed both these tracks in two hours. And I could see them talking behind the glass. And yeah. uh, pretty soon the talk back came down and said, well, what are you doing Monday? <laughs> and I go, nothing. He go, well, I'll be here at noon. <laughs> yeah. So that's when we cut Don't Stop. Wow. Which, wow. And then it just kept going from there. It's all about timing, isn't it, John? It's a, that was a very great godsend. Yeah. 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 Interesting. You know, and I guess that is a that's another break. I had two extremely huge breaks within a couple of years of each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've been on call with Quincy since like I guess 1979 or so, and yeah, since uh, the, the beginning of '79. Yeah, and you know, over the years, you've you've been uh, right there practically through every step of the way with him. And I just wondered what has kept you so close uh, to his side as one of his go-to drummers. Well, I you know, and obviously right now in these days, in the last few years, there's mm-hmm. there's not a big cutting scene going on anymore with him. Mm-hmm. We're not like out there cutting new fresh artists, right. but yeah. um, I think the deal was is that he found a team and stuck with it. Right. You know, I mean, inclusive of Jerry Hay, of Greg Fillingans, um, um, you know, the bass chairs that could have varied between Abraham and Neil Steubenhaus. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, 
guitars, depending on what era it was, with Lukather or David Williams no, or, no, whatever you know, was, or, yeah. or uh, Paul Jackson mm-hmm. yeah. and different things like that. So he, he knew where his bread was buttered. Yeah, right. And, uh, and, and I think for the style of music that he was making, right. he knew that this band, plus he liked Cats that went to Berkeley. That was an interesting yeah. scenario. Really? And, you know, for the kids out there, this is something to be said. You know, like even like in the 70s, you know, Buddy Rich Band would, would fire everybody and go back to Boston and rehire horn players. <laughs> really? He would, wow. huh? Jeez. Of course, they weren't making shit, but... <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you know, obviously that's the that's the beginnings of almost musicians. You don't make anything really, but you get a lot of experience, you know. Right, that's right. Um, but uh, you know, you've you know you've been working with Quincy uh, for so many years. In '95, he released an album that was honestly it was it put him on the map. I mean, even as a as a solo project, it was, it was Juke Joint. Yeah, you think a Juke Joint that's came right. out in '95? That's right. That's right. As a matter of fact, we toured with a huge band uh, in '82 for in and out through that whole year. Yeah. Uh, actually, it was 81, up until 82, because yeah, in 82, really? I joined the uh, Glenn Fry Band right when the Eagles broke up. Really? Oh, really? Um, but, yeah, we toured Japan, and we toured the whole United States. We played all these Coors Jazz Festivals and Budweiser Festivals. Uh-huh. And, uh, I mean, it was huge. We, we played the Superdome, and it was, you know, completely sold out with, uh, you know, it was Greg filling games, Patty Austin. And oh, yeah, right. James Ingram, and... Yeah. That was, a, that was a very cool band. As a matter of fact, there's a... Rumor of a <clears throat> another get together for for uh, I can't actually say, but uh, yeah, there's something possibly coming up. Well, it's about that time because there was a little time between the dude and and the juke joint, but it seems as if it would be the right timing for another Quincy project to come out. I think so. Um, in regards to, to the juke joint, you know, I, I was looking at the credits on on that project and. My God, with so many people that are on the project's credits, from the vocalist to the guitarist. I mean, he used, Quincy used so many people, but specifically for the, you know, there were only a few drum programmers, but you're the only drummer. Well, thank the Lord. I mean, I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I, I was expecting, okay, they'll, you'll see, uh, you know, um, you know, Paul Leem or somebody else, uh, in the drums, and, but everybody, you see multiple guitarists, multiple bassists, right. whatever, but you were the only drummer. Well, he's, uh, you know, I think that he and I think alike about, uh, you know, when you build a house, you build it from the foundation up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's probably the way he thinks, too. Now, there were a couple credits to Mark Hammond and Steve Procaro for uh, a little bit of additional drum programming. I mean, right. can you recall what what kind of programming would have been auxiliary that would have gone into this project? Would I think it depended on, I, I'm not sure of the song list on that record, yeah. uh, but... There may have been some songs that I wasn't on. Gotcha. That could okay. have been uh, like fully programmed with yeah. machines. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that's probably. I mean, I, they, that they came within the song. Yeah. Okay. That song is. You know, Quincy probably said that's great. Done. Put Paulinho on top of it. And how does Quincy? Uh, how would he record this project, Juke Joint? I mean, is it all completely studio? You guys track, or uh, how would he put this together? Generally, what happens is the uh, not none of us are all assembled together. Gotcha. Uh, that would just, I don't think there's a studio big enough to handle that. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, I mean, even during the Michael days where we would be, or that one, we, the rhythm section would be called for X amount of days for right. X amount of weeks. Gotcha. Uh, and we'd go in and, and um, hammer out uh, at least two tunes a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the older days, that's probably about right, too. It's probably yeah. two tunes a day. And get those done and then go home. Right. And, you know, and then he would automatically then be at another pace on another level of the record, you know, whether it be a string arrangement on this other thing or, or uh, doing keyboard overdubs in a completely separate room right. simultaneously. I mean, mm-hmm. when we did bad, that, that all of us were divided up all at the same time in different studios. Really? Wow. And so, you know, some of us were doing things. I was overdubbing on the record and like Larry Williams or certain people would be... Mm-hmm overdubbing keyboards, and uh, it was quite amazing. You know, some of the tracks on that album, uh, you know, are kind of reminiscent of Quincy's, you know, early career arranging that he did for Sinatra, you know, classic sort of, you know, almost like a big band sound, and other tracks are, you know, kind of R&B hip-hop, and, you know, that, that's, that's quite a diversity, and, you know, how, how did you handle that? Well, I, I, with, I, I love diversity, uh-huh. and, and um, you know, he's probably one of the only people that can get away with that. 
uh, with you mm-hmm. know the eclectic side. Yeah, uh, absolutely. However, you know his whole thing still ties together, mm-hmm. yeah. which I'm still learning in my young solo record career. So mm-hmm. you know about how to put you know, and have a, have a theme go through your entire record. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes, I, I, me, I like to turn right and play rock here and, and turn left and, and play some sort of weird inside stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, to try to tie that together, and he's, he's able to do that. I love uh, uh, diversity like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, J.R., we recently spoke with John Harrington, who's a, a guitarist for uh, Donald Fagan and, well, Walter oh, yeah. Becker, Steve Dan. And we asked him, uh, Rick asked him the question, you know, when you're in studio with Donald Fagan uh, and uh, as their guitarist uh, of current guitarist, what kind of liberties, what kind of uh, um, license do you have as, as a player? And I'm going to ask you the same question. When you're in the studio and when you're working with Quincy as a drummer, what how, does he let you go? What How do you find your way to the track or how do you understand what he wants? Um, you know, and he's, he, when he, you know, I have always considered him the greatest producer. I mean, I've worked uh-huh. with George Martin also. Okay. And there's another one of the greatest producers. Really? Yeah. Um, but Quincy is not one to say a lot of things. Hmm. And, and purposely so. He has a lot of things to say, but, um, his wheels are turning so fast mm-hmm. that, um, he, that's why he, he is to me compared to a movie director. He is the greatest cast. He, he can cast and direct and produce. And so what he does is, per the style of record it is, he will cast the correct players. Yeah. And by that, then, basically, we're little producers. He's given us carte blanche and hats. Yeah. And we're on this record. <clears throat> we are making decisions. Yeah. When I got on the, the my first large record was off the wall, and that was uh, 79. It's amazing. And he allowed me... And he didn't allow me. He just, I just did it. Mm-hmm. I made decisions. Mm-hmm. I made decisions for everyone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at, at uh, 25 years old. So that was good. So there'll be a time when the rhythm section won't be getting a track. And he'll come out and uh, he won't really say anything. He'll look around to us. <laughs> and then he'll say some sort of phrase like, uh, well, you guys need to stroke it a little bit more. Or, but, and I'm using a phrase quite loose. Yeah. Uh, or actually tighten up. Uh, but he'll he'll have some sort of a catchphrase yeah. that everybody will know what he really means inside, yeah. and then the next take we got it just like that. Yeah, it was a feel thing, huh? Yeah, it's it's a feel thing, and uh, you know, I mean, you know, I remember, um, certain, you know, sometimes he'd say to me, "Jr., you're dancing too much." Hmm. In other words, you're playing too much stuff. Yeah. You know, simplify, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, there was another time when we were doing the dude where I I came in and Lukather was playing guitar, and I I was a little bit later coming in after Lukather, it was for probably a 12 start. Yeah. And I see Lukather laughing at my drum set, and I'm a ways away, and I go, what are you laughing at? He was like, at your drum set, man. I go, what's the matter? And I look over the, the barriers, and it's all been stripped. And all is in there is a bass drum, a snare drum, and a hi-hat. And he goes, where's your drum set, man? And all of a sudden, Bruce Swedeen, engineer, comes out, and he goes, Quincy doesn't want any Tom fills or cymbal crashes on this record. <laughs> and I go, <laughs> take it out to half your set. I go, okay, whatever he wants is fine with me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, then that was the dude. I don't know how many Grammys later, six. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now you mentioned the, the name Bruce Swedeen. Uh, what, a, what an amazing engineer he is. Hey, first guy to record in stereo. Yeah, yeah I think that's he true. invented stereo back in the 1600s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's credited with, uh, you know, well, obviously, like you're one of uh, Quincy's go-to drummers, he's certainly one of Quincy's uh, go-to engineers. No question. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's, I've had an opportunity to speak to him and hear him uh, talk at various functions at, like, Audio Engineering Society, mm-hmm. you know, meetings and things like that, and he's just a wonderful guy to listen to. He's got, you know what? I mean, a lot of people, uh, the older people listening to this, remember the Kingsman. Uh-huh, yeah. Louis Louis. Right, right. Bruce mm-hmm. Wayne. Okay. Really? Chicago. <laughs> That's I mean, Dino cool. Washington. He's uh-huh. recorded everybody. My goodness. Yeah. It's, it's it. And then he, uh, I learned, he was like my surrogate father. Really? He was, uh, you know, he was from Minneapolis, and, uh-huh. and uh, he... You know, I, I just uh, sponged up everything I knew I, I could about microphones and mm-hmm. technique and distances and and um, frequencies and bass drum techniques. So, you know, like on certain records, he would make me make me play the bass drum hmm. at pianissimo while I played the snare drum at forte. Wow! Uh, and uh, now I challenge any drummer to do that 
during a, an A recording. Well, what was, his, what was his point with you doing that? The point was he was like taking maybe a Sennheiser 421 and uh-huh. cranking the living crap out of it. Uh, really, really hot. So it forced me to totally change my style, and uh, but keeping the snare drum at the same level. So he wanted the specific sound out of okay. the bass drum. Okay. Yeah. So that was he was going for sound. That's very cool. Yeah, I, that's another subject we could go into for you yeah. know an hour. How you like a drum? Yeah. How you like All right. I'll just make it. A, I'll put this in my book every week. Okay. No, Bruce Wayne. I mean, we could talk about him. For <laughs> He's the greatest. Yeah. Well, you know, since you your career started, you've played on you know practically every kind of, of recording, and in fact, you I think you've been labeled as the most uh, recorded drummer in history. Yeah, so, one of them, yeah. you know, from the business side, how, how do you differentiate or filter out which jobs to take, and you know what not to take now in your career? Well, that's a great question. Um, the days of you know going to three different sessions right one after another are really kind of far and few. Yeah, you know, we used to like run three different drum sets right. or two and bounce between places in Hollywood, North Hollywood, uh, Van Nuys, all out here. Then we get on a plane and go to New York and, or they go to, go to Nashville. You know, those are a little far and few. But, um, you know, now what, what I think happens is there's a point of giving back. So I'm in a band. I'm in several bands, and, one, and they're all really talented, the best players in the planet bands. Yeah. One band we're playing with Friday night with uh, it's David Foster, Mm-hmm. Uh, Nathan East, Greg Gaines, Michael Thompson, Dean Parks. Who are those guys? Uh, there's, you know, <laughs> up and coming. <laughs> and we, we have an all-star band, and we've had it for years. Uh, we've been doing the, these charitable events for Andre Agassi for 11 years, yeah. and Muhammad Ali for seven years, and, and uh, we're doing something for Oprah on Friday. Cool. Uh, which could possibly be for someone else. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, <laughs> It's just kind of a nice thing to give back uh, for certain situations, too. So mm-hmm. that's one thing I always take. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the Ali thing it happens every March. Uh, or, yeah, it's March in Phoenix. And uh, that's a really great cause for Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. The Agassiz thing is to build, uh, you know, these uh, needy kids in Vegas. He builds these, uh, this school. It's really quite extraordinary, which I've toured. And uh, that's a really good thing, too. As far as, uh, <clears throat> you know, like touring, uh, I, I choose not to do much of that unless mm-hmm. uh, I'm in control yeah. of something like that. Or it's like a specialty thing. Like I'm playing with this Japanese taiko drummer coming up here in about three weeks uh, at the Japanese Cultural Center okay. named Hidano. And that's going to be very bizarre uh, uh, instrumentation. Interesting. That's something different. Um, uh, that's like... The, the whole thing, you know, I just did this record with my uh, with Michael Thompson and Mark Williams and TRW. We mm-hmm. did that last year, which is more of a rock record. And then I'm starting to work on a solo record again. So, you know, and also obviously with a third child, I'm uh, and a baseball coach. <laughs> <laughs> that's neat. You got to make time for the important stuff. Oh, uh, yeah. that's right. <laughs> hey, listen, taking a look at uh, a quick glance at your discography, I noticed that you do an awful lot of international work and. Uh, I'm, I'm learning that you, you're also a bilingual drum player uh, because some of the artists that you've played for, you know, are, are contributed to their projects are Marco Antonio Solis, oh, yes. Luis Miguel, oh, yes. Temerarios, Mata Sanchez. I mean... Uh, yeah, Temerarios hasn't even come out yet, I don't think. Really? Well, we've been doing that for quite a while, unless you know if that's released yet. But no, that, I, I don't That know. is really good stuff. Is it really? Oh, yeah. I'll have to... But the Luis Miguel, I... I God, I knew him when he probably wasn't shaving. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he started out so young, and look at the amazing talent. He is. I think he's one of the greatest singers, uh, you know, and Quincy thought the same thing of him. Yeah. Quincy always loved the way he sang. Mm-hmm. Um, Have you ever worked with uh, Mr. Gatica, Umberto? All the time. Yes. All the time, right? Oh, yes. How, how is it working with him? He He's very demanding. Yeah. But uh, one of the greatest uh, engineers um, of, of all time. Yeah, man. exactly. And, uh, you know, he was David Foster. He was the Bruce Whittian of Quincy for yeah, David Foster. Exactly. And, excuse me, and, uh, you know, he has now become a, a producer on his own right. And, right. and I, God, I've done just tons of stuff with, with Umberto. Yeah. I mean, I think the first time I worked with Umberto was 1980 with Bill Champlin. Really? Doing Bill Champlin's solo record like, a long time ago. We just saw Bill Champlin here. Rick, how, Rick, how long ago was that? Oh, about a month ago. Oh, he's great. Um, recently, you've let's talk about some some very recent stuff. You just did a special thing uh, at NAM this year, right? And, um, uh, and unfortunately, I was I got really ill right yeah. after that special thing. But uh-huh. um, I've been doing these Yamaha corporate concerts 
the last couple of years now, and it's uh, it's a very difficult drum chair to be in because um, unlike these David Foster gigs, we we don't have as much time to get a massive concert prepared. So uh, you know, this year was John Legend. It was um, John Anderson from Yes. So oh, we're cool. doing Roundabout. Wow. Oh my God! And this stuff's written out. <laughs> Seriously? Wow! It's written out. Wow! So and it's written out like on a matchbook. It's like a Bob Dylan lyric. <laughs> oh but, my gosh! Uh, Explain a little bit. What was the process of rehearsing for this thing? Uh, well, we get in uh, on Thursday, and uh, we got a 10 a.m. start. So I, I'm in there immediately, you know, working with the engineers, uh, uh, getting the sound correct, and uh, making sure things are set up. And so. For this thing, I set up a second snare drum, so I set up a 10-inch kind of a custom piccolo that matches my new uh, A-set that Yamaha makes okay. on my left. And I normally don't use two snare drums if I'm doing something special. Right. And mostly it's just meat and potatoes, you know, set up correctly. And uh, so just getting things set up right, blah, blah, and then looking at the music, and then we start coming in and, and going down a set list of order that could be possibly out of show order. And uh, with this one girl, Sarah Bareilles, I don't know if you're hip to her. No, I'm not. She's got a number two song on iTunes right now. Uh, just an amazing singer-songwriter. Sarah Most Bareilles. of these people that are on these concerts are uh, piano player singers. Okay. And uh, all amazingly talented. Uh, so I'm, I don't have the full list in front of me now, but the, the surprise guest was Stevie Wonder. That's a good guest. <laughs> and I've, uh, yeah, I've played with him many, many, many times. Uh-huh. And... Uh, it's it's one of the most exciting things of all time. Was he scheduled, or you're saying he's surprised? He was scheduled, but nobody knew it. Really? I mean, we knew it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was the headliner. Exactly. So it was special guest. You know, wow. they didn't know who it was. So and what numbers did you do for him? We did I Wish. Yeah. We did um, Sir Duke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we did uh, Superstition. That's funky cool. stuff. We Very did... Overjoyed. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, it. Which he just started, and then we just kind of, you know, came in. Real. That must be cool. We did another a fifth one. I can't remember. Real funky one. <laughs> and um, oh, we did Sign Still Delivered. Oh wow, that's which cool. was Very cool. great to Very play that cool. old tune with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fun gig, huh? It was. It was great. It was yeah. great. And then I ended up relapsing, getting sick, and missing uh, Yamaha Groove All Stars. Well, which I was supposed to be, I think, at the end. Well, if people don't know who the the Groove All Stars are, it's a collection, really, of uh, of some of the best drummers in the world that the Yamaha sponsors, correct? And uh, correct. And some of the the list, the short list here is Keith Carlock, Russ Kunkel, Rick Morata, um, Dave Weckl, you know, and the list goes on. These guys are amazing, you know. Um, but what what kind of a performance would have the Groove All Stars been uh, with so many drummers? Uh, that's why they always put me at the end. I, I was. Um Going to pull out the Rufus song, uh, Once You Get Started. Yeah. And uh, this girl, Tabitha Fair, was uh, singing it. So what happened was, since I became so ill and had to go home, mm-hmm. uh, Jerry Brown, yeah. instead of playing his tune, he goes, well, I'm playing JR's tune instead. <laughs> so he, he did it. So Tabitha sang it. And cool. uh, I'm really thankful for all, all of them for doing that. Yeah, that's cool. So it, it would have been, I mean, I have actually the rehearsal MP3 of it, which, really? uh, which we did on the previous monday oh yeah Ooh, if you unfortunately um <laughs> i know that may appear somewhere <laughs> <laughs> we won't say nothing but we'll t- talk to you later <laughs> <laughs> hey you mentioned a few minutes ago about your band trw and yes. again that's uh, guitarist michael thompson and and also singer uh bassist mark, mark williamson and of course yourself and last year you guys released uh rivers of paradise and Listening to a few tracks on your MySpace page, I mean these these are great songs, and you know not just your normal rockers. I, I really I really enjoyed what I was listening to. Thank you very much. Well, I mean that was our whole thing. I, I you know I'm I'm a rocker at heart, always have been with uh, you know R and B roots. And, yeah. Uh, I mean I'd still want to do another rock record if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I mean I, I come from like I love Paul Rogers. Yeah. Um, I, my favorite rock band was Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Um. But you know, the thing about Paul Rogers is he's more it's more R and B ish, you know, with his edge and and Mark kind of sings like that. And um, you know, Mark and I had a, 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 a duo deal in eighty nine ninety on CBS called Bridge Too Far, mm-hmm. and it, it it was great, but it uh, got swept under the rug hmm. um, after W. It was on WTG after Sony came in and bought CBS. Okay, 
So there was a bunch of us that got swept under the rug, including Jason Bonham. Was on wow. Our so we had a record out, it's, and it's a very, very collector's record called uh, Bridge Too Far with a two. Bridge and Too Far. And then I took Mark, uh, who's from England, and, and we uh, formed this band, uh, which we used to be called Revolver. Right. And uh, that name was kind of used, so we just kind of evolved into uh, Thompson Robinson Williamson and then and did this record through uh, Frontiers in Italy, right. which uh, they like melodic rock. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, actually an option for a second one. I don't know if we'll get to that or not. But uh, it was a great thing making this record because there other, every song is melodic and means something. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how long have you been together with these guys? Have you been doing this? Is this a new project? or No, this was an older project revisited. Yeah. Um, we, we got together uh, in 1991. And we were doing gigs 1991 and 92. Oh, yeah. And 93. And we did a gig where we opened up for Eric Burden and Brian Auger once and and uh, just kind of blew them away. And, then, uh, uh, you know, um, KLOS here in Los Angeles called us the next coming of Led Zeppelin, you know. I go, all right. <laughs> you know, I'm really thinking the right way. And, you know, just to try to get. Uh, get momentum on that, it was still very difficult because, you know, we're all doing, Michael and I are always doing sessions. Right. So to take us away from that uh, was very difficult. And uh, so now, the way it is now is Mark lives in Nashville and Michael and I live here in Los Angeles. So, mm-hmm. and I see Michael probably once every couple of weeks. Mark, I don't see enough. And Mark is one of the lead singers in the Groove All-Star Band. Okay, interesting. So uh, what we do is basically we kind of record and write now via distances. Yeah. And then and then record that way, which is very mm-hmm. difficult to do. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you mentioned Led Zeppelin a couple of times, and you know, just uh, do you think there's a chance that those guys are going to get back together? I know they, I, I know they assembled recently uh, to do a gig in in London, I believe. I can't remember what it was for, but I, I just keep reading rumors every now and then that there's a possibility that they might take that and, and go with it. If I was a betting man, I would bet the farm on it. Really. You think so? Well, you know, with all these with all these comeback tours by you know bands like the Police and Van Halen and Genesis and you know I I don't know I wouldn't put it past them. It'd be nice to get Rufus and Shock on a comeback tour. <laughs> that would be. We heard I don't a think rumor. That would ever happen? Yeah, we heard a rumor that. <laughs> well, we heard a rumor about Rufus. Let's look at it that way. <laughs> it was about about forty minutes ago. Well, right. we, you, you mentioned that we might talk about that a little more. What what is the? Tell us the uh, an update on that, or can okay, you say well, anything at this point? The update is Bobby Watson, the bass player, and I have yeah. reformed the band. Uh, the band now, though, will be with Hawk, which was the keyboard player. Yeah. Uh-huh. Hawk lives uh, in Tennessee. Okay. Um, and um, Larry Dunn from Earth, Wind, and Fire's uh, first band. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. And Michael Thompson. All right. Look at that. So it, this band is really strong. Holy and um, And right now we're going through a, um, a singer uh, audition. Uh-huh. And um, it'll be multiple singers. Mm-hmm. So uh, we are... Booked now in Scandinavia and Europe. Wow. And Las Vegas. That's cool. I, I take it you guys have considered or even chatted a little bit with with Shaka Khan and the whole thing. Is uh, is that out of the question or what's uh, she just doing her own thing right now? Right. She's doing her own thing. Yeah. She has a record out. She's also uh, in New York uh, doing The Color Purple. Look at that. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. So Very she cool. is actually She's in busy. a completely different mindset and a, a different space and a different direction. Well, with best. her career, which I am just really proud of her for that. Well, cool. I, I saw time. I saw her perform about seven or eight years ago on stage with Prince, and man, she's she's just got it. I just I just absolutely love her voice. Oh, <laughs> I, when I first joined the band, I was like, oh my god, yeah. you know, not only am I in love with the band, but I'm in love with the lead singer, which is probably <laughs> not good. Yeah, <laughs> my goodness, you know, every time I hear the song, I I I play it. Pretty, you know, pretty often, you know, through the fire and yeah, just, which I, I played on. Thank God. My God, it's just you know, it, it, if you're not careful, you start crying, man, because just <laughs> you know, she's singing it because she's become the song, you know. Right. That, a, that, um, that was the A band too. That was uh, uh, Nathan on bass, really, Mike Landau on guitar, and David Foster on piano. What wow. an amazing, amazing track. Yeah, oh. I agree with you. That was, uh, and we cut that at, and Umberto did that. Look at that. We cut that at uh, at Lion Share, Kenny Rogers' old studio, Studio B. Huh. Really? Yeah. Jeez. You know, those are the type of performances where sometimes you 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 can identify that track, that one uh, 
piece of music that you wish there would have been some video to see the performer in the studio cutting that, you know? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think, oh, my goodness, I'd give anything to be a fly on the wall in that studio. She's got an amazing voice. Especially, you know, and David is one of the other greatest producers of all time. David brought that high note out of her at the end. Oh, my goodness. Was that him? Nobody can hit in a full voice. (laughs) Yeah. You know? So she nailed that. That She did nail it. I'm going to jump over to one other topic here real quick, and that's uh, about a solo project you released in 2004 called Funk Shui. Right. You had, some, again, some amazing musicians uh, on this album, including a couple of our past guests, uh, Lee Sklar and Jeff Lorber. Oh, yes. And uh, that is a funky album. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I'm kind of a... You know, I'm I'm addicted to the funk side of Herbie Hancock. Yeah, okay. you yeah. are. I mean, yeah. it's and uh, I, I I always will be, and probably the next record will even go a little further than that. So, yeah. what was Jeff Florber's uh, involvement in that project? Uh, did Je- he contribute? Jeff and or? I have always been very close. Yeah. I have worked with Jeff over on over eleven projects. Look at that. You know, from Dave Cause uh, going back to Jeff Lorber solo records and. Uh, and actually, Jeff and I and Nathan and Paul Jackson had a band for about a year called Spur of the Moment. Really? Cool. Which didn't quite go anywhere, but we played live. It was just burning. Oh, okay. But um, I called Jeff up in, uh, in uh, need of a song. And so that's what happened. Uh, he goes, man, I got this song called Cool TV. I, yeah. So I listened to it and, you know, helped co-write it and... Uh, and uh, that's how it, it uh, happened like that. No, he's a, he's a great guy. We had the, the privilege of literally when he was here uh, performing in Indianapolis, we had the, the privilege of, of having dinner with him and, and having him in the studio live uh, for the interview. And, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, great guy. He's he's so amiable. And you got to listen to his interview because he, he's just a cut up too, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, his new album, He Had a Hat, uh, is wonderful. I, I I don't know if you've heard it or not. I have not heard if it. If you I haven't, haven't, get your hands on it. It's called He Had a Hat, some of the nicest stuff with Bobby Columbi. Oh, fantastic. That produced uh, the project for him. It might be worth uh, you uh, shaking that tree a little bit. That's, that's a really cool piece of music. Beautiful. I will definitely check it out. Yeah. Yeah, Jeff's great. And, you know, of course, Lee Scalar and I go way back. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I miss Lee because, you know, now he's in Toto. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I don't get to see him in the sessions anymore because Lee and I do all sorts of diverse things together. Here. Right, right. He was one of my bass players. I... I'd come on the date, oh, it's Lee, you know, or it's me, <laughs> or it's Neil, or, uh, or it's Abraham, but now it leaves out, so. Hey, I want to mention one track also on the Feng Shui album, and that's called Hair of the Dog. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think Gary Grant did some amazing horn work on that uh, that, that piece, and I just wanted to mention that, that this album, Feng Shui, is, is really, a, it, it's a, it's really a keeper, and I encourage whoever's listening out there uh, to get your hand on this piece of uh, music. I think it's a great collection of stuff. You know, since we're talking about all of these great tracks on Feng Shui, why don't we just dive into a sample of uh, one of the songs we've been talking about here. This is John Robinson's Hair of the Dog from his album Feng Shui.
And that was a sample of Care of the Dog from today's guest, John Robinson. John, I, you know, uh, not to butter you up here, but I, I love that particular track, and the entire album is, is really, it's fantastic. Thank you. Hey, yeah, and you know, it's like, for an artist to actually release his first record, it was very, uh, you know, difficult for me uh, to, to, not to start it, but to complete it. And, you know, with family and all the things I, I do... And finally, I, you know, a couple of years ago, I just said, you know, I'm going to complete this. Okay. I'm going to do it. And, you know, by doing this, you, you're wearing all the hats. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're running artwork. You're, you're doing liner notes. You're, you're financing the whole record yourself. You're, uh, you're, you're going to mastering. You're, you're mixing or co-mixing and you're engineering. So, and, and I'm playing guitar in this record and bass and, and, and rough vocals and, and different things like that. So... It's a it's an interesting uh, beginning project for hopefully it will be a long pro, uh, you know career for me as a solo artist. Yeah, uh, hair of the dog <clears throat> is exactly what it is. This is what this is, and it's uh, it's kind of deep. And John Beasy plays a great uh, piano solo on it. Got mm-hmm. Brandon Fields. Um, and Gary playing those horn parts. Yeah, Brandon feels great sex. And I got Neil playing bass on that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, basically Neil replaced a lot of my synth bass parts. Mm-hmm. Where did you record this? Do you have a studio, I did this right? here at, at Home Court at my home studio. Yeah. But now, since I've done that record, I've completely redone my studio. So Really? Yeah, it's, I'm back in, the, I'm up in the state-of-the-art world with Pro Tools HD2. And there you go. Yeah, Rick is a Pro Tools engineer. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. we're, we're well, tracking over here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's an excellent engineer. I, well, on the note of uh, we're talking about solo projects, uh, you had mentioned that you may be considering a brand new solo project. I'm definitely. I've I've already started uh, messing around uh, yeah. with the when I redid the studio with the drum room. Uh, I always had two different drum sets set up: the big fat studio kit and then a bebop kit. Yeah, but it was either or. And I couldn't do those simultaneously in Pro Tools at the same time. Mm-hmm. In other words, I mean, obviously I can't play both sets at the same time. Mm-hmm. But um, this way, everything is armed. So I can now write however I choose to write and not be limited by any sort of technology. That's cool. And uh, this is something I wanted to do from the old record to the new record. So starting to do that, I mean, there's a point where I'm, I actually want to do several diverse records. I want to do a, a, a quintet, which I think will freak a lot of people out. <laughs> when I was in Boston, and I played bebop a lot, and I mean, just loved it. However, I still may incorporate it uh, into modern music, which right. is probably what will happen. Yeah. On that note, uh, who, who are you listening to right now? Your personal, you know, when if you were to open up your iTunes or do as your iPod or whatever you play, I mean, what, who are you listening to these days? I mean, who would, just, just give me know, one or two different tunes or some of that really stand out today you know the advent of having xm in one car and sirius in the other uh <laughs> is really hip because then i can uh you know i can <clears throat> just turn on like channel 72 on xm and right. uh, listen to some stuff i've never heard before right so i mean i i am still religiously listening to herbie hancock yeah uh-huh. and um you know i'm a very mood oriented person i'll 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 put on um you know, something that's very nostalgic to, to maybe uh, start the car in the morning. You yeah. know, I mean, my, you know, my feeling, start that car. Right. And, then, and get that going. And, <laughs> you know, I may go into, uh, you know, um, some Bill Evans trio mm-hmm. and that stuff. So I'm still, you know, I listen to a lot of the stuff from the past. Yeah. Still, because it, I still, it, 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 I think that everybody has really patterned themselves after this. And there's a lot of just repeating of, of ideas and things that were stated once and, and correctly. I don't know if that makes sense. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I've got one more, uh, one more quick question for you. Do you still have your – do you still own your Simmons drums? <laughs> I had to ask that one. I mean, you've got wow. to put it in the closet somewhere. Come on, did you? Did you ever? What's your experience with a man? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, it, it's funny. I think the joke was – <laughs> With the SDS five and the SDS seven yeah. from a second story drop sampled, what does that sound like? <laughs> That's funny. Probably like uh, uh, you know yeah. what? I think uh, the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know what? Somewhere in storage down at Cartage, um, 
I think there's still some pads down there. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, God, you know, I remember the old days with looking at the SDS-6 brain, you know, yeah. you, you, I just program any sort of 16th note sequencing pattern sure. and go into the closet and turn the lights out and watch it go by. <laughs> hey, did you ever have any experiences? Uh, did you ever program uh, the Lindrum? I, uh, a buddy oh, yeah. I had a long, long time ago, but uh, that, that was uh, a revolutionary piece of equipment, wasn't it? Yes, I, I remember the day that Roger Lynn came into a rehearsal at Danny Serafin's house with, with Rufus. Yeah. We were rehearsing in there, and he came in and showed us a, a little cassette player hooked into an old computer system. Yeah. And he goes, guys, man, you got to see this. And Hawk and I are looking at each other like, I know what's going on here. <laughs> Holy cow. You know, and he's like, uh, you know, I know that he's getting sounds from drummers, and I'm not going to go in there, but... Uh, but Roger Lynn brought that right in to show you, right? He brought in the the beginning... Look at that. The beginning thing in 1978. Wow. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, we saw what was going on, and, you know, thank God it didn't affect my career too much. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> but I know a lot of cats that it did. Yeah, yeah you're right. And, I'm sure. Uh, that actually, you know, kind of chased them out of the business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a tough season for uh, for drummers, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it was, and it, and it lasted a long time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, with the Simmons... I ended up using those as toms and this keeping the, the Yamaha kick and snare. Yeah. Or Yamaha or Ludwig or whatever combo. Right. And, you know, like on Yamo Be There. You know, right. Listen to that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's amazing. But, you know, you go with the, the you know, sign of the times. And mm-hmm. Matter of fact, I remember playing on the uh, uh, boat at NAM or PAS with the Neville Brothers. Really? And we brought them a Simmons drum set for Willie Green, and he and I played the sh- concert together. <laughs> on, the, uh, on the boat, <laughs> which was really kind of weird. Yeah, <laughs> not the Nevels; it was just the Simmons. Yeah, the Simmons drums. Well, this uh, being the start of a new year, um, I'm just curious: what's on the horizon for you? What what kind of gigs do you have coming up, or um, you know, what, what will you be working on here in the in the foreseeable future? Well, of course, you know, we've got this uh, function this Friday, right, right, for Oprah, which is uh, going to be a very big thing. By the way, tell Greg hi. Tell Eddie and Rick say hello. Oh, you're talking about filling games. Yeah, you're right, right. Oh, right. definitely filling games. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Uh, you know, with the with the Rufus thing um, being put together. Right. Is uh, We're not rushing into that. We're doing that the correct way because this is going to be, you know, the next five or seven years will be very good for the band. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, to probably do a record with that band, which would be very, very great to do. That would be cool especially with that instrumentation. Uh-huh. Uh, in the solo record, I've got the Ali event in, in March. I'm going to the Mesa uh, in Germany, which is their big show, hmm. uh, and playing for the Yamaha Groove All-Stars uh, in March in Germany. Okay. Um, I'm also going to be doing massive campaign on online drum lessons. Really? Uh, which nobody really knows about, but now you guys do. So, uh, that will be released. Uh, I'll give all the data to that uh, within probably by May 1st. Great. Very cool. On that, and that's going to be for beginning, uh, intermediate, and advanced, all aspects of that. Very and cool. It'll be re- really good for educational aspects. That's oh, awesome. definitely, definitely. And then, you know, obviously, if uh, the Barbara Streisand thing uh, re gears up uh, in the fall, there could be a possibility of some some more work there right well very cool well john thanks for joining us on inside music cast we appreciate your time and this has been a great conversation and uh hopefully like we tell everyone we can uh stay in touch and somewhere down the line we can uh hook up again and and do some more chatting rick and eddie man it's my honor uh you know for inside music cast and it's a it's you know it's to be able to get the word out there to the musicians and um you know hope they can learn from this and uh and you know be teachers also you got it you can bet on that okay Beautiful. Thanks a lot. Take care. You got it, guys. Have a good one. Special thanks to John Robinson for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. 
If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at insidemusiccast.com. 